With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is Ryan Howard, Creative Director at Annals of Surgery, and today is another episode of our Annals of Surgery Journal Club series, where we discuss new and impactful papers just out in the journal. Today, we'll be discussing two new fantastic papers examining resident wellness, burnout, achievement, and the learning environment among surgery residents. We are lucky enough to be joined today by Dr. Yaron Hu, Dr. Ryan Ellis, and Dr. Rami Korfan, all authors on these papers. Dr. Hu is a pediatric surgeon at the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago and a health services researcher at the Surgical and Quality Improvement Center at Northwestern University. She is a co-principal investigator for the second trial, a national study of the learning environment and resident well-being in 215 general surgery residency programs, and is an author on both of the papers we will be discussing today. Dr. Ellis is currently a surgical chief resident at Northwestern University and is lead author on the paper, Comprehensive Characterization of the General Surgery Residency Learning Environment and the Association with Resident Burnout. Lastly, Dr. Corfan is a surgery resident at St. Joseph Mercy in Ann Arbor and lead author on the other paper we will be discussing, The Role of Personal Accomplishment in General Surgery Resident Wellbeing. Welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having, Thanks us. For having us. Thank yeah. you. Dr. Ellison, who I'm going to start with your paper because I think this is such a nuanced and granular study of resident burnout in the learning environment with some really shocking statistics about workplace mistreatment in particular. Could you share maybe the one or two main conclusions that you want readers to take away from your study? I think uh, actually one of one of the things that I, I focus on, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of presenting this a couple of times, both, you know, sort of internally here at Northwestern and, and at major meetings. And the thing that I focus on is actually um, the biggest takeaway to me is not uh, how shockingly high the statistics are. Um, part of that could be that, you know, we've looked at mistreatment in our, in our previous work and thus we were unfortunately, maybe prepared for some of those numbers. But for me, the biggest takeaway of the of the paper is actually um, figure one, which shows the distribution of the exposures uh, across the programs. And, you know, the temptation when you look at data is, is you see sort of like you were mentioning, you see these very, very high numbers. There are some programs where 100% of the residents are reporting mistreatment or 87% of the residents are reported that they're dissatisfied with um, you know, the organizational culture. Um, but when I look at it, I actually focus more on the other end of the spectrum. I focus more on the left side where there are actually programs that don't have any appreciable exposures at all in some of these domains. So, so the, uh, you know, I think this paper highlights the fact that problems certainly exist. There are certainly areas that we need to work on, but the fact that there are programs that exist without huge, you know, 
pervasive problems here demonstrates that this is remediable. This is something that can be fixed. It's nothing that's inherent in the surgical environment. As some people might have you believe, you know, it's, this is just the way that it is. But that's my personal takeaway of the paper uh, is, is, uh, is that it's actually, there's a great silver lining beyond all just those statistics. That's great. And, you know, I think that actually kind of dovetails um, into the second paper as well, where Dr. Corfan, you looked at kind of the flip side of burnout, which is how does this, you know, sense of personal accomplishment that residents have play into maybe a protective factor from burnout and dissatisfaction. Um, so similarly, what were kind of the findings in your paper that surprised you or that you really wanted to make sure readers took home with them? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think that is a good, uh, uh, kind of a transition because our initial initial kind of interest in looking at personal accomplishment actually came from you know conversations I had with uh, Ryan, um, who you know was um, a lot uh, very familiar and kind of experienced with the the results of the um, the survey um, and the data we were getting from residency programs. And um, you know one thing that stood out to us when we were kind of thinking about it is that we talk about all these negative exposures and um, you know factors stressors in the residency environment. Um, but the fact is that people still come to surgery and, you know, um, people still, uh, majority of residents still report being satisfied uh, with their job, with their decision to be, become surgeons. Um, and we kind of wanted to investigate why that is. Um, and, you know, personal accomplishment is part of the, the burnout inventory, but it's kind of uh, fallen out of use, at least in uh, physician populations for various reasons. Um, so we thought that would um, kind of be interesting to look at and see how it tied into burnout. And, you know, conceptually, like you said, it kind of can be thought of as um, maybe not exactly the flip side since it's part of the scale of burnout, but something that might counteract some of the stressors of residency and the things that contribute to burnout. Um, but I think, you know, overall the takeaways from, uh, you know, from the paper and from uh, kind of learning about this uh, concept is uh, the main thing is that personal accomplishment is an important domain uh, of resident well-being. And it can um, potentially counteract some of the stresses of residency and promote resident job satisfaction, um, you know, kind of um, fight against uh, resident attrition or at least thoughts of attrition a little bit. Um, and secondly, I think more importantly is uh, while we tend to think of things like personal accomplishment and grit and uh, resilience as kind of individual characteristics, we actually show that they're um, pretty uh, significantly associated with factors in the training environment. Um, and uh, as Ryan said, you know, those are things that are modifiable and things that we can work on improving. Um, and through, you know, various results that we saw in the study um, kind of give us specific and actionable targets to kind of improve residents' individual feelings of personal accomplishment and engagement and fulfillment, which are all kind of related concepts. Uh, so I think that's the kind of the main takeaways that I got working with these uh, data. Yeah, for me, the zoom out is for both studies, right? Like there's so much focus on how can we pick more resilient people? How can we pick grittier residents? But the issue is really the system and not the individual. And I think that the editorial by Dr. Gribbs and Dr. Mullen um, really articulates that so nicely. Um, we have a lot of agency as program leadership into our residents' environment and how well they are. Yeah, and I, I think that's such a great perspective that these papers offer. And I guess I'll just follow up with a question to say, you know, here we have one paper that shows actually a significant proportion of programs are doing quite well. 
And another paper that shows there may be these protective, you know, um, behaviors or factors um, to burnout and dissatisfaction. What, where do you see those two things kind of being married in terms of what we can do at the learning environment level to help protect trainees from, from these issues? Yeah, I think um, one thing that we hope that these papers sort of help do is shift the conversation away from all the negative things that um, uh, have sort of been discussed, you know, uh, previous papers on abuse, uh, uh, harassment, discrimination, which which clearly are, are paramount issues that have to be dealt with. But I think especially as Rami's paper highlights, when we when we help the people who are working there really enjoy the parts of their job that are enjoyable, um, then you uh, then you have the opportunity to offset negative exposures, which you know frankly they may may come from patients, may come from places that are harder for us to control. So uh, when you look a little bit at the uh, the comprehensive characterization paper, we focus on some things: um, operative autonomy. Uh, adequate use of support staff, uh, ways that with just a, a series of sort of simple survey questions, a program or perhaps the national training environment in general can get an idea of uh, how they're doing in terms of fostering the positive educational aspects of training. Um, it, it's, I think it's very likely that we, we haven't looked at it super specifically. It's very likely that a lot of these things are, are connected. You know, the more autonomy you feel, the, the, you know, the less time you spend doing sort of menial hospital work, maybe the higher your personal accomplishment is going to be. And the personal accomplishment will probably offset some of the other, um, you know, negative emotions that can come with, with the stresses of the job. So I, I do think that the granularity of the study, um, and, and, Hopefully, this type of data pivoting us away from just all the bad things that happen at work and highlighting some of the great things that can happen and how to how to bolster those and make those a bigger part of everybody's day to day lives. Uh, hopefully, it would be a big a big takeaway. Yeah, I think kind of uh, related to that. Yeah, I would say again, I think there's been a lot of focus on like we travel a lot for a second or previous to the pandemic. We travel a lot for a second trial visiting programs and seeing what they do, and there is a lot of sentiment about my resident is mentally ill and what am I going to do about that? You know, I should have picked a different resident is sort of the in implication. So, um, but right, like it could be the negative things. It could be the positive things, but either way it's the environment and um, we should take responsibility for those things. Well, great. You know, I, I think kind of building off of that, um, no one's going to disagree that the last 12 months and certainly the pandemic and all the strain that COVID has put on programs and leadership um, has really exacerbated, exacerbated, I think, a lot of the stresses that are kind of faced on a daily basis. Um, but in terms of, you know, kind of, I, I think this focus on the flip side of all of that, how do we empower residents, you know, to resist, you know, dissatisfaction? How can program leadership or the learning environment be improved? Have you seen um, any ways in which, you know, the way the COVID pandemic has played out that have brought these issues to the surface, ways in which programs have maybe employed strategies um, to already kind of capitalize on these things you're talking about in the papers? Yeah, I think, um, well, let me let you guys talk. You guys are actually residents working during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I think that, um, 
one thing, this is anecdotal, uh, you know, being at a single program, but also having friends at other programs and, uh, you know, having just finished fellowship interviews and having a little bit of a pulse of what's going on elsewhere. I think uh, there has been a sense of unity uh, among trainees, even more than had previously existed. I think surgery residency had sort of a camaraderie across the country before um, COVID. And now this shared experience has created um, the opportunity for uh, so much empathy and so much sort of a resetting of our expectations and what we want our lives to be, that it has, um, it has fostered conversation. Um, both across programs and within programs. And and within within our program, there has certainly, it, it could be, it's a little bit hard to parse those things out because the second trial was beginning sort of right at the beginning of COVID. So it's, it's sort of hard to tell how much of it was the trial and how much of it was COVID itself. But there certainly have been some focuses. Uh, there, there's been increased focus, I should say, on, on, uh, on keeping, uh, keeping the group uh, happy at work while recognizing and and outwardly talking about the stresses of work. So I think that, that you know, in the past, uh, the tough surgery attitude was uh, we're not going to discuss the problems we're having. You know, it's going to be, we're going to talk about it at M&M and, you know, depending on the culture of your M&M, it might be a little adversarial and, and, and moving on. But, but because of sort of the shared trauma of COVID, it, it has opened up the opportunity for us to talk about how difficult work is. And, uh, and I don't think maybe that's just a Northwestern phenomenon, but I don't, I don't think it is. Um, and I think that's one way that, um, the pandemic has if, talk about looking for a silver lining. Uh, maybe the pandemic has helped that a little bit. Um, but uh, I don't, Rami, did you have similar experiences at your institution? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, the main thing, uh, like you said, kind of being able to talk about, you know, the stresses and, and, um, you know, how difficult, um, work like you know being a resident in general and especially in and through covid uh, and um you know i think when it comes to like personal accomplishment um there is potentially you know like a collective feeling of you know we're doing this for the common good and um you know we're trying to improve people's lives which is uh you know a big part of personal accomplishment is positively influencing people's lives um which you know um in the early kind of wave of the pandemic was was difficult you know there wasn't a lot of hope and there was a lot of kind of despair but just kind of the little things like um you know some hospitals kind of have a little a celebration on the unit when a patient is extubated things like that um kind of celebrating the small wins i think um kind of contributes to that feeling of you know actually impacting people's lives and and not only has like uh, kind of a collective um you know, bringing people together, but also gives you kind of individual feeling of, um, you know, fulfillment. Um, so I think that just like everything was kind of heightened and intensified during the pandemic. Um, but. We did have an item on this year's survey about um, my program came together during the COVID-19 pandemic, and there was not actually that much spread. Most people did feel like uh, their programs pulled together, which is a nice Thing to see, and if there's a silver lining, as I guess puts it, um, I would say that I think my guess is that the um, we did all these focus groups with um, like Zoom focus groups at the beginning of the pandemic to talk about how they were handling things. Um, and my guess is that what happened with COVID is sort of a microcosm of the way your program operates, and whether or not that helped or hurt you had to do more with 
sort of the underlying environment. So I think things that were important, for example, are transparency. So I think an old sort of surgical attitude is I need everything sort of tied up and packaged before I present it to you. But in the pandemic, you need like the information is evolving and it's never really tied up. Right. And so you need to like just communicate. We don't know, you know, like there's no PB and we don't know when it's coming, that kind of thing. Right. And that's really important so that you have that trust between administration and residents or, or any, at any level in an organization really. Um, and so presence or absence of that transparency is going to be really integral to wellness. Yeah, and I can actually, you know, my experience too, Mir, is that just the, the early on, you know, not having all the information and not knowing what to do with that, and then realizing that transparency kind of trumped everything. Um, you know, along those lines, I think the the resident perspectives, both in these papers and both, you know, from you two, uh, are really great, and I agree, are echoed, I think, throughout the country. Dr. Who, from the faculty side, have you seen things change in the last year as like second trial data has come out or faculty mobilization to kind of respond to these new perspectives on resident wellness? Yeah, I mean, I think I would love to take lots of credits. I don't think it was us. I think it's like, you know, the sea change in surgery, right? People care about wellness now. At least I hope they do. <laughs> I think, um, I think, I mean, in terms of the trial perspective, COVID is tough, right? Like it happened right in the middle when we're supposed to be doing interim analysis. It's It caused additional problems with wellness. It took resources away from what people had started to work on before the pandemic. So uh, in terms of like the scientific part, it's going to be a little bit tough to tease out. Um, I, I do think there is uh, increasing conversation well, about wellness, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's us, whether it's just what's happening. I think that is all needed and great. Um, one thing I've heard of a lot about, right, is faculty trickle down. So is faculty wellness really an integral piece of the resident wellness process? And, you know, that might be something you move to eventually. Um, I think they're related. I don't know. It's hard to say the directionality, right? You can imagine it being driven either way. I personally have seen um, one thing to, to sort of circle back to, to our paper, the comprehensive characterization paper, um, in terms of faculty interest and engagement in wellness overall, is that <laughs> this paper has so much data and explores so many aspects of the training environment that... Uh, more experienced physicians um, certainly know what we're going through, and they will think back to what what stressed them when they were trainees, and that will be something that they can very much empathize with as leading to trainee burnout. And this, the data that's being collected and disseminated to the second trial now is so granular that we can, it's, it's not... Um, you know, just two or three different exposures in the hospital that a certain faculty might not um, empathize with or might not understand how that can be a negative exposure. But it, it's, it's a list of 30 things. And, and somewhere along the line, the faculty are going to, to understand it and buy into it and really, really say, man, I can't believe, you know, our support staff you know, is so inadequate or the residents think our support staff is inadequate or, or something like that. Um, so I think uh, that's probably what I've noticed the most um, is, is actually just because of the data itself. And, uh, and I, again, to echo what Dr. Who said, I'm not sure if it's just the world is primed for it and everybody's ready to take on this problem or if it's the availability of the data. I, I don't know what it is. I'd like to think it's a little bit of both, 
Um, but I do think that um, there's been a, a substantial increase in the interest of, of faculty, both senior, junior, and in the middle uh, in helping address this problem. We have another resident, Brian Nasca, who is working on a study in which he compares the ad site results to a survey we give to program directors to um, ask them whether or not they know that these things are issues in their program. And there is essentially no alignment or minimal alignment. On wow. So I think that the data does help people understand what the issues are locally because of whatever reason, it's just too hard to get that information um, directly, right? And and I don't think that's the fault of either the residents or program directors. There's a lot of things in the way, right? Like if you are afraid of retaliation because you think there's no meaningful redress for mistreatment at your institution, of course, you're not going to report. But then how can your program directors do anything about it if they don't know? So there's like this vicious cycle happening. And so what we hope that the second trial data provides people with is some benchmarks, so I don't, we didn't explain this earlier, but basically what happens is residents take the outside survey, the results get aggregated at the level of the program, and then they get benchmarked. So you get told your program is like the best, somewhere in the middle, or the worst at mentorship from faculty, or uh, camaraderie with your co-residents, or discrimination uh, for various reasons. And so it doesn't tell you how many people reported anything, it just tells you like, am I doing well, or am I not doing well? And I think that that information is helpful, at least based on Brian's data. It seems like it's not information they otherwise know. Hopefully that makes them more receptive to do something about it. <laughs> yeah, the, and you know, I, I, I want to follow that up with how, how do you all want to see the second trial data as it comes out inform, you know, I guess, meaningful improvements in wellness or, or actionable steps, I think. Like, you know, one of the things I think we all kind of chuckle at is this idea of like the mandatory 6 p.m. wellness meeting or something like that. Um, but it sounds like with the data you're gathering, either putting programs in touch with what's going on locally or offering up, you know, which of these granular details is associated with burnout and wellness and et cetera, there are kind of some actionable steps that can come out of that. Right, I think, um... The the reports uh, paired with sort of uh, the two papers we're discussing today are almost a manual. Um, uh, you'll find out uh, that you're struggling in X. Uh, uh, you know, again, an example would be uh, you know operative autonomy. My operative autonomy at my institution is particularly poor, and then I go to the paper in Annals of Surgery and I find out that that increases burnout by two. You know, odds ratio of two, and oh my gosh. Uh, it also would improve personal accomplishment. So it is, I mean, it, it, there's a little bit of an activation to it, but I think that that is sort of, sort of the idea is that um, it's not, it's not a, a situation. I think in the past when we talked about this, uh, there wasn't enough information, um, whether it was information about the problems or information about possible solutions for a program directors to really have a chance. And that's where this 6 p.m., mandatory wellness meeting or the twice a week burnout inventory, you know, all that stuff came from. But but I, I think I genuinely believe that given the right information, all of the program directors in the country will do the right thing for their program. And if they have a smoking gun or if they have a couple of areas that they really need to work on and they're given um, the information and the tools to deal with it, then it's going to get better. Um, and it's going to get better without uh, some of the uh, more blunt tools that can actually be a, a little irritating to residents. <laughs> um, one of our program tours, we went to a place where they had 
tried to um, institute a wellness intervention, which was yoga at 7 p.m. on a Wednesday. <laughs> and, um, and it had like torpedoed all wellness efforts at that institution uh, going forward because, you know, we're all laughing, but let's call it out. They, you know, not everyone wants to do yoga. Not everyone wants to do it after hours. Other people have, you know, people have competing priorities, like maybe other things are wellness to them. But on the other half, like the administration felt like we went through all this trouble to identify a yoga instructor and pay for it and schedule it. And how come no one is going? Do we need a yoga champion to tell people that they need to go get their wellness? And it was just this huge disconnect about what wellness is. So what we tell people is you need to talk to your residents. Like we do give you this really granular level of data, but you still need to talk to them to figure out what exactly it means. So, um, for example, you know, what is meaningful mentorship exactly, right? Like they don't feel like they're getting it. And maybe you have a mentorship program, but it doesn't meet needs. And why is that? So you still need to go to your source and figure out exactly what's going on and how to meaningfully intervene. Um, yeah. And the second thing is like, the wellness is individually defined. So it's going to mean different things for different people. You can't really mandate one thing for everybody and just think that that will be your mandate. It's better to have like a menu of options and have people pick what's going to be useful for them. No, that's, that's awesome. Um, uh, Dr. Corfan, like any thoughts along those lines, just about actionable steps that you saw come out of the data? Yeah, I mean, I would echo what, what Ryan and Dr. Hoare are saying about, you know, kind of the blunt one size fits all, um, you know, wellness interventions that that are well you know well-meaning but usually either are ineffective or backfire in worst cases um and you know then one of the the i think the most valuable things that our uh studies and you know the second trial add is really having that granular data that um you know allows programs to identify where their areas are um areas of weakness are and what they can do to improve them and you know talking specifically about the personal accomplishment paper uh, one of the most interesting findings uh, to me was the difference in kind of resident um, level um, in terms of what the important factors were for personal accomplishment. Um, so like Dr. Who's saying, you know, wellness is, is very individual and it differs, you know, between uh, residents and people. Uh, but there's also things that tend to cluster, you know, based on uh, your level of uh, training. So, for example, like one of the most uh, kind of notable things for me was seeing that mentorship was one of the main drivers of personal accomplishment for senior residents, um, but wasn't really important at all for interns or even junior uh, residents. And that kind of made sense to me, you know, as you're kind of progressing through residency and kind of taking on more of that senior leadership role and kind of thinking about transitioning to practice or fellowship or whatever it is, you really need that, that kind of uh, support from um, faculty. Whereas when you're an intern coming in, you know, I know a lot of places have this kind of similar to the mandatory wellness meeting, they have like a mandatory mentor meeting where you're assigned somebody when you come in uh, as an intern and you're supposed to meet with them a certain amount of times. And I mean, in my experience and, you know, anecdotally, that usually doesn't develop into a meaningful relationship um, for most people. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, any kind of mentorship relationship is going to depend on, uh, you know, the two people and uh, what they have in common and, and, you know, the effort they put in as well. Um, so I think just having not only the, the granular data about what um, your program uh, needs to improve wellness, um, but also knowing where to target those uh, so you can, you know, use your resources effectively, I think um, is important as well. The third thing I was going to say about the yoga story is that wellness is broader than like what we've traditionally thought of as wellness. And a little bit we're hosed by like the wellness industry, which mm -hmm. produces like, you know, 
the expensive blankets and you know retreats where you like buy crystals like the fluffy yes wellness is not that i mean it could be that probably not that for everybody or most surgical residents even we have to think about like what is it that gives them meaning at work and what gives them you know respite from the things that are hard yeah that's that's great um I want to switch tacks a little bit and ask you all, um, you know, I think another thing that's become more and more apparent is kind of how integrated all these stressors outside of the hospital are into the training experience. Um, You know, issues of systemic racism, the, you know, nonstop gun violence, all this stuff, I think that residents are more and more becoming advocates uh, in and just, you know, experiencing alongside their daily work. Um, and I I wanted to ask this group, you know, do you think it's important to understand kind of how those issues too outside the hospital impact trainee wellness? And are there ways that programs can kind of um, help trainees cope with, you know, I think a lot of these big picture social issues? I think, um, you know, like you said, things that affect, you know, people in general are obviously going to affect residents too. So whether it's, you know, systemic racism, gun violence, or the pandemic, like we said, all these things definitely have, you know, profound impacts on um, resident wellness. Um, You know, I think we focus on the training environment, obviously, because it's something that's at least somewhat within our control. Um, But as far as, you know, helping residents cope or, you know, take on these, uh, you know, social, uh, you know, events or dilemmas or whatever uh, you want to call them. I think uh, the most important thing is, is something Dr. Who said earlier is just kind of talking to your residents and knowing your residents. I think kind of understanding who they are as, as people, as you know, members of, of their community um, and where they're coming from and what they need is really going to guide what you do. It's really hard to say, you know, this is what you should do to help your residents cope with racism or with, you know, gun violence or whatever it is. Um, and it really has to come from, you know, a place of understanding who your residents are as people um, and kind of asking them what they need, essentially. Yeah, I agree. You can't really change, you may not be able to change like the structural problems in society, right? Although, you know, we can try to make progress in those things, but you can change within your learning environment, you can change how you receive those things and how you help your resident receive those things. So I think just staying aware, right? And cognizant of those stressors, um, being sensitive to what may not be your own experience. Uh, one thing I was talking about with the, I, w- I was on this like uh, town hall over the summer about um, anti-racism that uh, Clesia Clark moderated for the um, AAS. And one of the things you we were talking about before all the people <laughs> signed on, like the moderators were just talking about um, Juneteenth. And um, at the time it was right after uh, George Floyd had been murdered. And one of the other moderators was saying a resident of her, a black resident of hers had just on Juneteenth, having had, you know, all these events swirling, had had this like vicious uh, feedback session. And her point was just, this is not the time. And be a little sensitive to what is happening in the world that like, this is not the time to feedback, you know, like that time can come later. Yeah, I think that um, uh, just one of the things that hopefully comes from the second trial uh, and and exposure to these data is just the opportunity for programs to reassess how they engage um, their residents' uh, day-to-day lives. 
beyond just the clinical training. And, uh, you know, there would be there, there in the second trial toolkit and, and, you know, I think just growing across the country, there's training on uh, microaggressions and there's training on debriefing after, um, after adverse events. And even if those types of things and those types of changes in the culture don't directly impact how residents um, and programs handle some of these, you know, very challenging social situations, it does, I think, give programs a, a better social background, uh, you know, a better, a better, uh, a better social understanding of letting their residents, you know, experience these things and talk about them and having and giving them space to to bring some of those problems to work. Whereas in the past, perhaps we were expected to completely compartmentalize. So I think just opening up a space where, where programs are more comfortable helping their residents cope with negative issues, that'll, that'll naturally spill over to even the issues that come outside the hospital that the programs don't have as much control over. So, you know, it sounds like with all this second trial work, not only are you getting the data out there, but really intentionally trying to turn these data into tools that programs can use, you know, for, for real improvement. Um, what are your next steps in this area? What should we look for from the group as you, you know, continue getting this stuff out there and um, um, addressing all these trainee issues? Yeah, I don't think we explained this earlier, but the, the other part of the intervention is after you get the reports, there's a toolkit that's online um, and it is, uh, comprised of things that we found as we were doing the program tours for the second trial. So things that have worked for other programs that are like packaged in an, you know, take this straight out of the box kind of intervention. So if your problem is um, resident mistreatment, there's like the Michigan cultural complications, M&M. There is um, microaggressions training, like Ryan said. There's, you know, a series of different things for every problem. So the idea is not only like, here's your problem, be sad about it but here are some answers. Um, so there are 50 things in the toolkit right now, 50-ish things. And I think there's another 70 going in this summer. Um, in terms of what's next, well, uh, it's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> Having launched the Wolverine trial in the, you know, in the middle of the pandemic was not ideal. So we're sort of thinking about whether we need to extend that timeline, potentially give all resources to everybody and then do a deep dive into what worked and why it worked and whatever. And then what will third be about is like, under active debate, but I would love to hear what you guys have to say about that. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I will just say, uh, like, I, you know, as a trainee, seeing these two papers, um, I am very struck by, like you said, Ryan, like early on, just it kind of shifting the narrative into how many programs make it work. Um, and I guess just then the task becomes uncovering, like, what are they doing? And it seems like a lot of this work is like, well, we don't just have to kind of, you know, stand in awe of a few positive outliers. We can actually kind of enable all the programs to really understand, like, what are the unique problems there and how can we tailor improvements? Um, because sure, I, I think even in my time, you know, I, I've seen it change into a much more, I think, sensitive discussion around wellness where, you know, starting training, it was still, I think, in this era of like compartmentalization and we're all going to sit together and have a didactic about wellness to much more understanding that like each individual defines that differently. I think that a lot of, you know, when you first look at it, you're like, oh, I have to tackle gender discrimination. That seems like <laughs> an insurmountable problem that took decades to make. But as Ryan said, just giving voice to the problem is a start. And I think we have actually seen 
programs do really inspiring things in a very short amount of time. I actually thought our timeline initially was unrealistic, but there's been more progress um, at like a ground level than um, that I think other places can look towards. I also think, uh, you know, residents in general are, are invested in, you know, improving their, uh, not only their wellness, but, you know, their, their co-residents and the program as a whole. So I think once uh, residents uh, see that, you know, program leadership is open to something like this, even if it's just, you know, participation in the second trial or, you know, talking about wellness or making space for it, I think the residents may end up, you know, shouldering a lot of that and, and taking it on because it is, you know, primarily, you know, um, their program, these things affect them primarily. Uh, not to say that, you know, faculty engagement and, and uh, involvement isn't, you know, critical, but I think um, just starting the conversation and, and making space for it, I think will kind of um, get over that first kind of hump of, of how to address these huge problems. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, something I've even seen change in my time, which I'm not sure if it's something you guys have looked at or seen mirrored at your institution, is just resident engagement, I think, in a lot of departmental efforts. So residents getting more engaged in how future residents get recruited or how faculty get recruited or what the didactic you know, topics should be. Um, I've seen that change a lot, even just in the last year or two. Um, and I think it's given you know, certainly me and my co-residents, just more of a feeling of ownership, um, I think, in the curriculum. Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting findings is when we, so we do this um, confirmatory factor analysis to make sure all the different domains separate. And we've tried to actually split it into other more granular domains, mm -hmm. but the ones that don't split are, um, there's like one that's control and flexibility. It's about like agency and autonomy and those kinds of things. And then organizational culture, they tend to run together. So for, I think what's really important about culture for a resident is that ability to make change um, within their program. There is this really great uh, New England Journal perspective by Hartsman and Grootman about um, like what it is that is decision motivation. And they talk about autonomy, um, competence and relatedness, which, um, I'm like, maybe we should even get smaller and like groups of even further. Um, but yeah, that ability, to, like we haven't traditionally thought of residency as something that you have a lot of autonomy, right? Like you come, you work, you're told when to work, you're told what to work on, but actually there can be much more control than that as you're finding. Well, that's great. Um, I wanted to just ask if any of you had any kind of final words or thoughts that you wanted to share. Um, I think uh, the thing, you know, I did not just this paper, but Dr. Hu and I and the SOQA group have written a lot of, you know, more than a handful of papers on this topic. And I think the, the thing that I tried really hard, which we tried really hard when we wrote this paper to make sure that it wasn't just bad news. It's easy to read it and say, oh my gosh, what a disaster. And, uh, and it's important to read it and recognize that a problem exists. That's important. Um, it's also important to recognize that the problem exists in the environment and it doesn't exist necessarily at the individual level. And it's important to recognize, as we've talked about, that that environment can improve. And I think we've seen amazing changes just with awareness of the problem. I think we've seen amazing changes paradoxically uh, with the, the body coming together during the pandemic. And, um, and I think that uh, looking at these data, whether it's in the paper, whether if you're an institution participating in the second trial, um, looking at the data and accepting them as reality, but also um, sort of having hope that uh, there's something you can do to fix it, 
is is all we can really ask for at this point. And if and if you do like like we were just talking about, if you if you do that and you approach it in that way, then I think there's real opportunity for change. That said, for programs that are enrolled in the second trial um, or residents, uh, we welcome having a wellness committee engage with us directly. So we do one-on-one office hours with people if they want to go over the reports and have us point them to particular toolkit interventions. Uh, We're also planning probably later in this summer, a conference, like a virtual conference where people can get together and like co-work on things. Um, So you can figure out how things are working in real time and sort of troubleshoot each other's issues. Maybe we'll come up with new things that no one has yet to. That's great for programs that are interested. Um, how should people reach out to you or where um, should they look for information about the, the upcoming conference? Our email address is second at northwestern.edu. Well, I just wanna thank everybody again for being with us today. Um, we really look forward to seeing what the group does in the future and thanks so much for chatting with us.